Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, uh, is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, uh, training in righteousness, that we may be equipped uh, for every good work. And Father, we thank you for this uh, book of Leviticus. Uh, we know it's a daunting book for, for well, I think, for probably for all of us. Um, but we pray that uh, you help us and you'll strengthen us uh, as we seek to understand what you have to say, uh, both to your people Israel in the past and to us today, uh, so that we may love you more and serve you better. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Because of God's promises to their ancestors, God had rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them out with great signs and wonders uh, to show that he was the one doing this. He led them to a place called Mount Sinai in the wilderness where the presence of God had, had been on the mountain in a cloud and God called Moses up in the, in the mountain and given him many laws for his people and among other things he did was he told him to build this, this thing called a tabernacle which was like a mobile temple. You can see a picture of it on the screen. There are various items in the tabernacle, which we'll look at a bit later on. Uh, but God gave Moses very, very detailed instructions about what was going to go in this tabernacle and how to build it. And Moses carried it all out. And when the tabernacle was completed, at the end of the book of Exodus, the cloud covered the tabernacle. The glory of God filled it. God was dwelling among his people. But how could a holy God dwell among sinful people? And how could sinful people approach and worship a holy God? What kind of worship would God want? Well, God addresses these issues in the book of Leviticus, which picks up where Exodus left off. In chapter 1, verse 1, God calls to Moses and speaks to him from the tent of meeting, which is another name for this tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting because that's where God would meet with Moses from now on. And God told him how he wanted to be worshipped. He gave Moses instructions about five kinds of offerings in the first five chapters of Leviticus. In chapter 6 and 7 he goes, he talks about those offerings again uh, in material that's more targeted at priests. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of the offerings um, in the sequence of chapters 1 to 5 but I'll also try and bring in some relevant material from chapter 6 and 7 uh, so that we don't have to go through the whole thing twice. All right? uh, and so having understood what all these offerings are for then and how they were made then we will try and work out what the significance is for New Testament believers. Well the first offering was the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was the basic offering in the sacrificial system. It was offered every morning, every evening, every day, every month, every year. And chapter 6 later on it says it had to be continuously offered. The fire would never go out. So let's say that you were the worshipper who was coming to the tabernacle this morning bringing an animal for the offering. And what you and your priest would do is described in chapter 1, which we read just now. You'd probably bring a bull, or a sheep, or a goat. Okay? Couldn't fit in your car, or the taxi, or whatever you came in. Right, so, it might be a little bit more difficult. But if you were poor, then you could bring a couple of birds. Now, the animal you brought would be a male without defect. 
You couldn't bring an animal that was lame or blind or, or, or sick in any way. And you would bring the animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now the entrance is not just that little bit there. Okay? It's the whole area in the front here. It's called the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, standing at the entrance, you would lay your hand on the head of the animal. And by doing so, you'd be identifying with it. You'd be saying, this animal is my representative. This animal is my substitute. You're saying, what happens to this animal is what should happen to me. This animal is taking my place. And then what you do is you take the animal and you slaughter it. Because that's what should have happened to you. Verse 4 says, The sacrifice will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Now, scholars are still debating of the exact meaning of the uh, Hebrew word that's translated atonement in the passage. Uh, the two most likely meanings are to wipe clean or to ransom. Right? So if it's... if the, the, the idea is wiping clean the main idea is getting rid of the defilement of sin if the main idea is ransom then it's getting rid of the penalty of sin it could be both there's a lot of overlap between the two right? although in this particular context I think ransom is better but whatever the case is atonement is what reconciles a sinner to the holy God and the sacrifice of the animal as a substitute is what makes atonement and brings you back into relationship with him. So, you slaughtered the animal, and then the priest would come along and do his bit. He would take some of the animal's blood and sprinkle it on the altar. There's the, there's the altar there. Uh, that's just inside in the compound, and that's the courtyard, and there's the en- this area here again, there's the entrance, and, and this is the courtyard of the tent of meeting, and that's, that's, the, that's the altar, it's called the bronze altar, or the altar for burnt offerings. Right? Before you could offer your sacrifice to God, the blood would be sprinkled on the altar first. And saying, yeah, I can only offer the sacrifice as a burnt offering because it has died as my substitute. So that opens up the way. You'd then cut up the animal uh, and prepare it appropriately. And the priest would come along and help you prepare it appropriately. And the priest would do that and then he would burn the whole thing. Okay? Here's a picture of the, the altar of burnt offering and there's the animal on the top uh, being burnt. And the priest who offers it gets to keep the hide, but the rest of it is completely burnt. And Leviticus says, the aroma will be pleasing to God. We get it at the end of verse 9, we get that at the end of verse 13, we get it at the end of verse 17. An aroma pleasing to God. That's the point of the burnt offering. You're wanting to please God. You can't please God until your sins are atoned for. You can't please God until the sacrifice is made, the substitute has died, the blood is shed, and once you've done that, you can give God this this gift, this this animal, this sacrifice that is pleasing to Him. That's the burnt offering. The second offering is the grain offering. Uh, It was usually offered together with the burnt offering, or with the peace offering, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. And the grain offering is described in chapter 2. You could bring grain, or raw flour, or you could bake it into cakes or wafers if you like, however you want to do it. It's up to you. But like all the other offerings, you always had to season it with salt. And the priest would take some of the offering, 
and mix it with oil and burn it with incense on that burnt offering altar. And the rest of the offering, the great offering, will be considered most holy and will be eaten by the priest. And what's the point of the grain offering? Well, just like the burnt offering, it says at the end of verse 2, it is an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Right? So that's the whole point of it again, to please God. To please God. That's the grain offering. The third chapter, we see the fellowship offering, also known as the peace offering. Right? Now the point here is a little bit different. The idea is of a party or a celebration or a meal together that showed peace between God and his people Uh, it was a fellowship meal where you shared a meal together you could bring it in thanksgiving you could bring it to fulfill a vow or you could just bring it for the sake of it as a free will offering and we see the offering described here you bring an animal from a herd a lamb or a goat could be male or female but has to be without defect And the first thing you do is you lay your hands on the animal's head, or your hand rather, on the animal's head, and then you slaughter it at the entrance of the tent of meeting, just like you did with the burnt offering. Because for sinners like us, there is no peace with God without the shedding of blood. A priest will take the blood and sprinkle it on the sides of the altar, and then the feast begins. First, the priest burns the fat of the animal as an offering to God. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 5 says it's an aroma pleasing to him, so it pleases God, but there's more to it. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 11 says the priest shall burn them on the altar as food. That is, if the peace offering is like a meal, then the fat, which is the best part of it, is like God's part of the meal, burnt on the altar for him. That's his bit. If you went to the end of Leviticus 7, you'll see what happens to the rest of the animal. You take the breast of the animal and you bring it uh, and you wave it before the Lord and then you give it to the priest to eat. And the priest also gets the right thigh. Uh, and if the offering was specifically for thanksgiving for something, then you also have brought some cakes and wafers that belong to the priest. The rest of the animal you eat or you share it with other people. With two conditions. Firstly, you've got to eat it on the day it was offered. Unless it was to fulfill a vow or a free will offering, then you could eat up the leftovers the next day. But no meat is to be eaten or left around on the third day. Any leftovers must be burnt up. You can't have sacrifice still left around on the third day. Secondly, you must be clean. I will look at what it means to be ceremonially clean or unclean in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, But here in Leviticus 7, it's very clear, it's a very serious offense to eat the meat of a fellowship offering if you're unclean. And if you do so, you'll be cut off from God's people. It probably means that God himself will execute judgment on you and cause you to die. And thirdly, you're not to eat the fat or the blood, which we knew anyway. The fat of the sacrificial animal was burnt for God, and the blood was used to make atonement. So, in the peace offering, or the fellowship offering, God had his part, the priest had his part, and you had your part. And you're able to enjoy together and eat together in fellowship, which is the whole point of the fellowship offering. But once again, there's no fellowship unless first there's atonement. Because peace only comes through the shedding of blood. The fourth offering 
is a sin offering in chapter 4. Some people call that the purification offering. It's not there to deal with sin in general, but to deal with specific sins that you've realized you've done. And the sins that you've done don't need to or can't, you, you can't pay compensation for them. Right? If there's sins that you can do compensation for, we'll come to that later, you'll have to use a guilt offering, which is different. But if, it's, if you can't, then it's a sin offering. And furthermore, the kinds of sin that a sin offering could deal with are what our translation calls in chapter 4, verse 1, unintentional sins. These sins are things that you could have done without realizing it. Or you, you may not have realized that such and such a thing was a sin, and you went and did it. Or maybe you knew it was a sin and you didn't realize that you were doing it. Or maybe you knew what you were, you were doing something, but you didn't realize that you fell into that category. And now you realize that you've done wrong and you want to offer a sin offering for it. It could also be used for purification from, from ritual uncleanness, for touching things that are unclean. And many scholars also think it also, that it could also include times when you go astray and sin because of, of weakness and temptation. You fall into sin without meaning to defy God and go against Him, kind of sin. What you bring for this sin offering depends on who you are. If you're a priest, you bring a young bull. You lay your hands on it and you slaughter it before the Lord. And at some point during the ritual, probably when you're laying your hand on it, you confess that specific sin that you've committed. If it's the whole community that's sinned, it's also a young bull and the elders will lay their hands on it. If you're a leader, it's a male goat. If you're a member of the community, it's a female goat or a lamb. And again, you lay your hand on it and you slaughter it for your sin. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The distinctive thing, though, about the sin offering is what the priest would do with the blood of the sacrificed animal. The priest would take the blood of whichever animal was sacrificed into the tent of meeting. Now, if you're a leader or a member of the community, he'll take some blood with his fingers and he'll put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. Right? On the altar of burnt offering, the little horns on the edge, he'll put it there. And the rest he will pour out at the base of the altar. But, if you're a priest, or if the offering is for the whole community, he'd have to go further. He would first of all dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord on the front of the curtain in the sanctuary. That's the curtain that separated the, the, the holy place from the rest of the tabernacle. Right? There's the curtain there, and the holy place is inside there. Right? So there's the altar of burnt offering. So if you're um, uh, not a priest, or it's not the whole community, you just put the, bl the blood there. But if you're a priest, or if it's for the whole community, first thing you're doing is sprinkling uh, blood on the, uh, on the curtain there. And then, the priest takes the blood into the whole, most holy place. Uh, in, sorry, into the holy place, right? Here's the schematic diagram on it. Uh, there's that bronze altar on the outside, and there's the place where the curtain was. And so he actually goes inside with the blood and puts it on the altar of incense. You see? The blood needs to penetrate the tabernacle as far as you the sinner would go. See, a priest enters the, the, the holy place, and so the blood of the sin offering of the priest must get there. Uh, the priest who entered the holy place represented was part of the community, and so if it was for the community, the, 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 uh, the blood has to get up to there as well. 
But if you're a member of the people of Israel or a leader of the people of Israel, you only, you only ever get up to this courtyard and so the blood only needs to reach up to that point. The blood needs to go as close to God as a sinner goes. And the sinner cannot go without blood. Because you try and approach God without the shedding of the blood, with your sin, then you will die. After the blood was sprinkled and poured out, uh, the priest would burn the animal's fat on the altar. Uh, and then at the end of chapter 40, verse 20, uh, the whole point of the, uh, sorry, chapter, sorry, chapter 4, verse 20, uh, the whole point of the sin offering uh, is, uh, is shown. In chapter 4, verse 20, it says, In this way the priest will make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Okay? So forgiveness is the, is the uh, aim of the, of the sin offering. You see it again, uh, not just in verse 20, uh, you see it again in verse 26, you see it again in the end of verse 31, and again at the end of verse 35, he will be forgiven. Afterwards, if the sin offering was for an individual, the priest and his sons could eat it. If it was for the priest or the community, then he'd have to take it outside the camp and burn it. Right. Only one thing to add about sin offerings before we move on. Uh, in chapter 5, if you can't afford a lamb, you can offer two doves and a young, or two young pigeons instead. One for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering. And if you can't even afford that, you can bring flour. Right. Because you're not, going to have your, you're not going to miss out having your sin atoned for because of your social economic situation. Right? God cares for the poor. So, the purpose is to obtain forgiveness and substitutionary atonement must come first before forgiveness happens. And we go to the next chapter, chapter 6. Um, or the end of chapter 5, really, we see the guilt offering. The guilt offering is also called the reparation offering. It was for sin that was unintentional with regard to holy things or non-capital intentional sins against other people. Things like lying or cheating or stealing. Now, the fact you've done wrong to others means that you need to make reparation for it. That is, you need to give back what you've wrongly taken and give them compensation. So, if you've accidentally failed to give something to God that belongs to God, you need to give to God what is his due and pay compensation. If you've purposely lied or cheated or stole from someone else, well, you need to give back to them and pay compensation, 20%. But even if you've done all that, you've given it back and you've paid your 20% compensation, you still need to deal with God because all your sins are ultimately against him, aren't they? In chapter 6 verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord, by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen, etc., etc., then this is what you must do. So you have to pay back what you failed to give God, or what you owed to someone else, or what you stole or swore falsely about, add 20%. And if it was one of these things that involved another person that you need to do compensation for, then you have to pay back on the same day as you give the guilt offering. And then and only then would you offer a ram without defect to God for your guilt against him. You'll slaughter it in the usual place. The priest will sprinkle the blood against the altar. He'll burn the fat on the altar. He and his sons would eat the rest of the meat. And this way, chapter 6, verse 7, 
in this way the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord and he will be forgiven for any of the things he did that made him guilty so the whole point of the guilt offering is to get forgiveness isn't it just like the sin offering but what must come first reparation and substitutionary atonement both those things Okay, so we've looked at these, uh, these five offerings. Now, what do we learn uh, from here that's for us? Well, the first and foremost thing we learn, I think, from this, uh, these chapters is that in all offerings, substitutionary atonement is necessary. Right? You need a substitute to take your place to atone for your sins. Before any of the offerings are offered to God, you place your hand on the animal and slaughter it. Whatever the purpose of the offering, whatever the goal, it starts with substitutionary atonement. With the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, first step is always the atonement. The exception is the grain offering, but really it's still there because it's usually offered in conjunction with one of those two things anyway. The burnt offering tells that you need the blood of the substitute in order to please God the peace offering tells you you need to shed the blood of the substitute in order to enjoy fellowship with God the sin and guilt offerings tell you that you need blood shed of a substitute if you're going to be forgiven and approach God if you want to worship God the first thing you need is a substitute to make atonement But we don't do these offerings and sacrifices anymore, do we? And the reason, of course, is that God has already provided such a substitute. He was the perfect man. The one who had no sin. That all the unblemished animals were shadows are pointing to. And his blood was shed for us on the cross. He was slaughtered once and for all as the perfect sacrifice for sin. He was the true lamb, the one all the sacrifices were shadows of see the blood of bulls and goats couldn't really take away sin by themselves could they the reason the blood was effective the reason these sacrifices worked was because they were God ordained signs that pointed to a truly effective reality their power to atone for sin didn't come from themselves a bull or a goat can't take away your sin. Their power to atone from sin derived from the real atonement that was made on the cross. For Jesus is the Lamb of God who really does take away the sins of the world. And all the sacrifices, all the offerings are pointing forward to Him. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, He truly was our substitute. It should have been you, it should have been me. We should have been the ones to die under God's wrath. We should have been the ones who, who ought to have been slaughtered for our sin and our filth. But, but He died instead of us. He took our sins, our punishment. He made atonement for us. He, he wiped our slate clean. He brought our ransom. He appeased God's wrath. And through Him alone, through His sacrifice alone, through His substitutionary death alone, we can... Please God, we can be in peace and fellowship with God. We can 
be forgiven and therefore approach God. The Old Testament sacrificial system teaches us that substitutionary atonement is necessary. And the New Testament tells us that God has provided it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so secondly, we learn that the worship of God involves sacrifice with a goal. See, when God taught his people to worship him, this was it. It's offering a sacrifice. Um, and with a goal, pleasing God, fellowship and peace and forgiveness. And friends, the same is still today under the new covenant. Our worship involves sacrifice. For first of all, we worship in Jesus. We approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus. But Jesus didn't just accomplish the, the substitutionary atonement part of the sacrifice. Because on the cross he accomplished everything that the sacrifices were aiming to do. See, Jesus did what the burnt offering was meant to do. To be in a realm of pleasing to God. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He pleased God. He did what the sin offerings were meant to do. He brought forgiveness. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Uh, forgiveness was also the aim of the guilt offerings. And Jesus performed that role as well. Isaiah 53.10 says the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And not only that, he, he, he did what our peace offering or fellowship offering was meant to do. Through his blood we are cleansed from sin, able to have real fellowship with each other and with God. He's torn down the hostility between God and us and even the huge Jewish-Gentile divide. And so Ephesians 2.13 and 14 tells us that now you are in Christ. We who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ because he is our peace. And so Jesus really is the one who not only atones for our sin as our substitute, but accomplishes all the things that the sacrifices were meant to do. He truly pleases God, he truly makes peace, and he truly gets us forgiveness. He's the true sacrifice, the true priest, the true worshipper. And when we come to worship, we worship in and with and through him. The worship of God involves sacrifice, and the primary sacrifice of New Testament worship is the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. That's the sacrifice that is offered. But there's another way the New Testament picks up on the sacrificial language of the Old Testament. Both Paul in uh, Romans and the writer of the Hebrews, both of whom speak strongly about the unique and once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, go on to talk to us about a sacrifice that we can offer. Like the grain offering, remember the grain offering? Like the grain offering, it's a sacrifice that does not atone for sin, but accompanies the one that does. Because like the grain offering, and remember the grain offering, the purpose isn't to atone, but to please God. Have a look at me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, on page 803. Romans chapter 12, page 803. 
Paul says there, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And the rest of the chapter and the rest of the next few chapters tell you how to do it. It says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. And what does he say? Well, he goes on to say, use your gifts soberly in the body. Love each other. Honor each other. Share with God's people in need. Practice hospitality. Overcome evil with good. Submit to the authorities. Pay your taxes. Pay your debts. Don't judge each other on disputable things. Don't cause each other to stumble. That's, that's New Testament worship. Giving our lives as living sacrifices to please God in what we do and how we treat each other. And you get the same thing in Hebrews. Uh, flick across with me to page 853. Page 853. That was our New Testament reading today. In Hebrews 12:28 it says, "Therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Now how do we do that? Well, remember there's no chapter markings in the original Bible. Right, no silly headings like concluding exhortations like in the NIV. All right? Chapter 13, verse 1, comes straight after chapter 12, verse 29. How do we offer worship acceptable to God? Well, keep on loving each other as brothers. Entertain strangers. Remember those in prison. Honor marriage. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Remember your leaders, verse 7. Don't carried away, get carried away by strange teaching, verse 9. You see, and just in case we, we think that, Paul, that the writer of the Hebrews actually moved on to something else, he, he, he reminds us we're still on the same topic of worship. Verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others, for which such sacrifices God is pleased. Notice that we make the sacrifice through Jesus. Through Jesus, let us offer to God the sacrifice of praise. All right? It's never, never independent of Jesus. He's the priest through whom we come. He's the one that, that makes the atonement so we can bring our offering. And what do we offer? A sacrifice of praise. And what does that mean? Well, verse 15. The fruit of lips that confess his name. That is, we talk about him. We say good things about him. That's, that's, what, that's how we praise someone, isn't it? Right? If, I wanted to, if I wanted to praise Kenneth... I'd say, oh, isn't Kenneth a good fellow, you know, so handsome, nice haircut, and all that, okay? So what I'll do is I'll talk to you about him, won't I? And the fruit of lips that confess the name of Jesus are praising him. That's a sacrifice of praise. We advertise him to other people. We, we tell others how good he is, what he's done, speaking to others about him. And the other thing, the, right, the other aspect of the sacrifice, verse 16, don't forget to do good and to share with others. See, and, and the writer of the Hebrew says, look, God is pleased with that. Remember the aroma of the grain offering going up, metaphorically, pleases God. But what really pleases him, we know, is Jesus. And what really pleases him is when we're like Jesus. 
when we do good, when we help those in need, when we're generous with our resources for the gospel, God is pleased. All these are ways in which we can worship God now. And remember what Paul said when he was thanking the, the Philippians which, for, for, for the money they sent him for gospel work. He says, he says I have, uh, Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, just like that grain offering. Friends, we see in Leviticus that the worship of God involves sacrifice. And we've seen the New Testament, our primary sacrifice is the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. And we see that sacrificial worship involves what we do with our lives, with our time, our talents, our money, our relationships, our lips, our hearts, our hands. We live our life uh, to worship God. And that's the sacrifice that God wants from us. What else do we learn from this passage? Well, number three. Atonement does not replace restitution. That is, when we realize we've sinned, we need to confess it to God, don't we? When we realize we've sinned against someone else and we need, and that, that uh, restitution is possible and restitution is reasonable, then we really ought to do it. We can't just look to God for atonement and forget our sin against our neighbors. Remember the guilt offerings? You have to make restitution, give compensation. Maybe the people in Jesus' day weren't obeying this part of Leviticus, and so he reminds them in Matthew 5. He says, If you have offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Remember Zacchaeus, who repented when Jesus visited him? He said, Look, Lord. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and if I had cheated anyone out of anything I will pay back four times the amount. That's, that's way beyond the requirements of the law, isn't it? Friends, when we sin if reparation is possible it is necessary. In the case of guilt offerings needed to be made that very day. And reparation, oh, there's no reason why it's, it, it is still it is, it, it is unnecessary the new covenant. And you and I can't get out of our responsibilities by claiming God's forgiveness. When we've done wrong, where we can, when we can responsibly do so, we are to pay back. Some of us have apologies to make, and we need to make them. Some of us have bills to pay, and we need to pay them. Some of us have obligations to meet, and we need to meet them. And wherever possible, we need to compensate those we've shortchanged. Because the way we treat each other, the way we treat other people, is important to God. There's another lesson that we can learn from this sacrificial system. We talked already about God looking out for the poor, uh, but here we also see God making provision for his servants. I remember how in the offerings there was always parts for the priest to eat. And God made sure the people who were serving him were provided for. Now, in the New Testament, of course, we're all priests, aren't we? But there are people whose job is to preach the gospel. And God wants to make sure they're provided for as well. And that's a principle we can learn from this passage. And in fact, the Apostle Paul brings it out from this passage. 1 Corinthians 9. 
Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. It's a right that Paul didn't take up, right? but God's people are still commanded to provide for gospel workers. And so that we need to make sure that whenever we send people out to preach the gospel, that they're adequately looked after, as they do. The final thing that we learn from this passage is that we must worship God the way he tells us to. You see, God tells us how to worship him. It's not our job to work it out or make it up. In these seven chapters, God has told his people Israel very clearly how he ought to be worshipped. And we've looked at the New Testament and we've seen how God is to be worshipped now in light of the coming of Jesus. With, through, and in Jesus. And with, in, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we're to offer our lives as a sacrifice as well. We must approach God on his terms, not ours. Or we will face his wrath and be cut off from his people. I will see more of that next week when we read about uh, the ordination of priests and a couple of them who took things in their own hands and ended up dead. So, but we'll stop here and we'll pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you um, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you haven't left us in the dark as to how we can worship you, how we can come before you and, and bring offering to you. We thank you for the way you revealed yourself to your people Israel, uh, way back in the time of Moses. Thank you for your provision for them, uh, so that they could uh, please you, so that they could have fellowship with you, uh, they could be forgiven of their sins. And Father, we, we thank you most of all that you have given us the Lord Jesus, who is that great sacrifice, who does all these things for us. And Father, we pray that you help us um, to live our lives um, in response to that, that we would live our lives as a living sacrifice for you, and the way we uh, treat each other, the way we treat others, uh, and the way we, we go about our work in the world. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.